Yeah, the number one priority is that um, we're confident that a deal will get done by June 30. And it's unfortunate those things uh, do get posted, whether they come directly from uh, the administrators within the BCCI or from other sources, you never know. No, I don't think any cricket ball's a finished product. Everyone needs to understand that Shield cricket is our number one priority. Pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mentzel, a.k.a. Menas, and in this edition of the show, I'm going to take you right into the heart of where decisions are made about cricket in this country. Earlier this week, I caught up with Sean Carey, who's head of cricket operations in this country, and we talked about how Cricket Australia deals with other boards, the current wage dispute, context in cricket, day-night test cricket, and why the SCG was panned by other state skippers. So enjoy this interview with Sean Carey. And as always, if you want to get in touch with the Australian Cricket Podcast, you can email us on auscricketpod, that's A-U-S, cricketpod at gmail.com. And I'll be back next week, yes, next week, with another edition of the Autumn Series featuring Jared Kimber. But meanwhile, enjoy this excellent interview with Sean Carey, the Head of Cricket Operations at Cricket Australia. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. How are you? Very well, thanks, Andrew. And thanks for the opportunity to be able to say a few words with you. You know, recently all the headlines have been about wage disputes and TV rights deals. It's all a bit depressing. What's the mood like in Cricket Australia right now? Um, everyone's very buoyant. We've just come off uh, an amazing summer of cricket. We had record attendances both in venues and, and on the TV. And now we're very much gearing up for and looking forward to uh, an Ashes series. Uh, but before that, there's some fairly important cricket with Champions Trophy, a tour to Bangladesh, hopefully, and then another trip to India uh, for an ODI and T20 series before the, the Ashes campaign really kicks off in our in our next summer. Yeah, I find all the headlines a bit perplexing because, you know, I was at a lot of the games last summer and felt to me like cricket was vibrant and alive and growing in this country. So I think the the future is positive. So I'm trying to see past all the headlines at the moment. Yeah, I, I think it's it's, hot, it's historical that when, um, when the memorandum of understanding between the players is up for renewal, you get this, this period of time when uh, the parent body and the union body who are representing the players are obviously jockeying for their position and, and getting, their, getting their position out there. And um, there's always disagreements, but um, the heart of it is that we know that the players will want to continue playing cricket and we want them to continue playing cricket uh, and that a deal will get done and, and we'll move on. Yeah, and I think it's important that cricket won't just stop, will it? I mean, there's there's things in place that they can do short-term arrangements. Things will go on. So I think some of the headlines are a bit of panic almost. Yeah, I think so. The number one priority is that um, we're confident that a deal will get done by June 30 and, and the, the world will move on and um, it'll get it'll be put back in the past and, and the players will be able to continue focusing on what they do best and that's representing their country or representing their state. 
male or female, uh, and, and performing exceptionally well like they have done for many, many years. Well, talking of performing exceptionally well, we just had a very exciting tour to India conclude. One of your tasks at Cricket Australia is to manage relationships with overseas boards. How are you able to manage the relationship with the BCCI? Uh, it's, it's actually the best way to manage that relationship is to be face-to-face and get to know the individuals you were dealing with over the phone or over email. Um, and once you um, you have that face-to-face contact and you're able to understand the people at the other end, um, you, you seem to be able to have much more productive conversations when you get back to the country. And it's really important to have those pre-tour recce because the relationship with especially our subcontinental friends is so important. Um, and it, it's really good to be able to um, develop the relationship by being in their presence and spending a bit of time with them, getting to know them as, as, as people um, and getting to understand the culture that they live in and, and the way they operate. Yeah, well, how does a pre-tour recce or which is a pre-tour reconnaissance, I guess, uh, fall into that? How does that help? So when typically two or three months out uh, before an Australian team heads into a country, there's a group of us that go to that country and uh, we meet with the home board. So if we use India as, an, as, as the most recent example, uh, we landed in Mumbai. We spent a couple of days with um, the people that we need to deal with from a security perspective, uh, from a cricket operational perspective. So understanding the logistics, the movements of the team between the airport, the hotel, the hotel and the ground, and to understand what um, security arrangements are in place to protect, I guess, the team bubble in that perspective. Uh, From a subcontinental perspective, it's really important that we understand that detail in the most minute uh, form uh, so that we can feed that information back to the team. So when they arrive on the ground, there are no surprises for them. Uh, They know exactly who they need to meet and discuss the detail with and, and, and basically get on with playing cricket as quickly as they possibly can without any distractions. At the end of the Indian tour, the BCCI posted a clip of Matty Wade sledging a complete with the sound. I mean, is that something you'd contact them about and talk to them about that you'd be disappointed with something like that? Uh, it's certainly discussed uh, at a higher level and uh, it's unfortunate those things uh, do get posted, whether they come directly from uh, the administrators within the BCCI or from other sources, you never know. We have a really positive working relationship with um, our people that we deal with on the ground and uh, that, that sort of stuff gets forgotten pretty quickly and we move on and we focus on the next tour. And what about when uh, teams tour Australia? Do you get any strange demands from overseas boards or players that uh, that are unex- unexpected? It's a good question and, and yes, we do and, and it kind of brings a smile to our faces. Uh, sometimes we have a bit of a chuckle internally. So to give you a couple of examples, we've had a team out here uh, not too long ago where one player has requested that he needs um, he needs a chicken burger, a tub of ice cream and a can of Coke uh, for every meal he has at the ground. So um, dietary requirements are one of those uh, requests that we, we, we commonly um, have a bit of um, internal uh, chuckle over. The, another one with the ECB when they were out here for the last Ashes Tour, they actually sent us a glossy uh, what looked like a Jamie Oliver cookbook of their dietary requirements and we actually joked in the office as to whether we should go and print it and edit it and, and, and sell it online within Cricket Australia and develop a new revenue source because it was so extravagant. And it, so, yeah, there, there's certainly some interesting detail that comes around dietary requirements.
requirements for teams. Uh, but generally, teams have travelled to Australia um, often enough now, so they know they know the system, they know the routine, they know that they get looked after particularly well. And most international teams always look forward to um, their, their their trip down under. I actually saw that document that you're talking about the the cookbook that the ECB <laughs> produced. It was very extensive. I mean, it had almost 150 dishes for the chefs around Australia to cook. So you could have probably marketed that product. Yeah, it kind of increased the. The, the chef's repertoire, I think, and that they might have come out of it as as better chefs for the experience of having the English cricket team in in their in their in their ground. I, I remember hearing a story about one band. I can't remember the band that used to tour around, and they used to ask for a jar a, a jar of M and M's with no blue colour in it. So someone would have to go <laughs> through and pull out all the blue M and M's. Do you ever get anything like that that you just think, well, they're going too far? Well, as I said, the, that first one was uh, that, that hit us for a, a pretty big six. Um, to know that uh, elite athletes need a chicken burger, a tub of ice cream, and a can of Coke every time they have a meal uh, kind of it was an interesting one. There's a lot of fuel in that lunch. <laughs> there is. So obviously, he was running around um, a fair bit on the field. Uh, so, but no, we haven't had um, too many strange requests. I mean. You think about the movie superstars and what they request in their um, in their trailers when they're when they're in on on shoot or or, or doing a shoot for a movie. But we haven't kind of created um, that sort of prima donna yet in cricket. Might be coming. Um, the English are coming next summer, so you never know. Um, <laughs> another one of your tasks is working on the future tours scheduling. And I was wondering for the listeners, what are some of the main challenges in scheduling that we might not be aware of? Well, I mean, the, the Futures Tour program and the and the jigsaw puzzle that it is is fairly broadly broadcasted to 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 most cricket lovers, and we all understand, as the fan do uh, does, uh, that context is really important when it comes to uh, the FTP schedule, the Future Tours program schedule, uh, and the ICC uh, and their member boards are now working really closely and really carefully on the future of the way we schedule international cricket just to make sure that uh, the three formats are very much set with their own agenda and they all provide context uh, so that every match you play is the, the result is is important and is pointing towards some greater good whether that be a, a test match championship uh, or or ranking points or whatever it is that every game you play has meaning uh, and and it's I guess it's not um, it's not over. Uh, subscribe to in terms of, of, of number of matches or content played so that fans don't get bored of, of seeing the national team play in either Test, ODI or T20 formats. Yeah, with achieving context, it feels to me that at the moment it's one step forward, two steps back, but you're right at the coalface. How does it feel to you? Uh, it's difficult uh, because we have agreements in place that that are kind of there for the next few years. So to make change, um, everyone has to agree uh, that that whatever arrangements that we have in place contractually need to change. So um, whilst everyone believes that things need to change, especially around test and ODI cricket, uh, that people have to kind of bite the bullet a little bit and they may need to renegotiate uh, those contracts or those arrangements that they have in place for all, everyone or for the greater good to be able to to make these necessary changes. And it, it's a difficult and complex task uh, and the boards are working, as I said before, closely at how they're going to go about that and, and when they can implement this, this necessary change. 
Yeah, can you see a situation again when we have the Australian T20 side playing on one day and then the day after the test side in action? I mean, that happened last summer and it was there was some universal head-scratching about that. It's not a good look, is it? Uh, well, sometimes it's unavoidable. And, yeah, in an ideal world, in an ideal schedule with the right amount of games, then you probably wouldn't do it. But sometimes uh, you don't have that choice. And I guess... We've also taken the view here at Cricket Australia that uh, the t- going forward, the test side, and especially the compar- compared to the T20 side, there are going to be some significantly different faces. Uh, so if, if that situation comes again, then we're relatively confident that it's not going to impact our, our desire to have the two best sides on the field, even if they're a day or two days apart in different parts of the country. And whilst Australia is ranked six or seven on the in the in the T20 rankings, we also need to be really flexible and have the view that we need to think about um, different personnel and, and and what is the best formula or what is what is the best who are the best people who can represent our country in the T20 format. And that may be twelve completely different faces that that represent our Test team going forward. Yeah, I'm not sure. That I still think there are some players in the Test side that probably would have are in our best T20 side that could could be playing in both teams, but it is hard. But potentially, but we've also um, had uh, taking your your perspective that um, the best what we believe the best T20 side turn out at the T20 World Cup in India and not perform particularly well. So again, we, we I think everyone needs to have an open mind and be flexible with. Uh, the, the makeup of the next Australian T20 team, and, and it may be that there's three or four players in the Test team that would ideally play in your in your T20 side, um, and in depending on um, what competition that the Australian T20 side is playing in, would depend on uh, how you prioritise the selection of those players. What, yeah, what input do the players have in scheduling? They have a they have a um, significant input. Um, there's a lot of discussion that goes on. Uh, when we're put when we're finalising our international schedule with um, the senior leaders of the Australian cricket team, um, I have a very open relationship with the Australian Cricketers Association, and we uh, we we consult regularly with how we're shaping the domestic schedule. So th- there's plenty of input, and we we make sure that we get um, the feedback from our test captain and vice captain on on the on the preparation that they think is required for their international summer here in Australia and it's why we've been really strong on on making sure that we've got three shield rounds uh, leading into the ashes um, to allow all of our test players the opportunity to play a day night shield round and also play plenty of uh, red ball cricket leading into that first test in Brisbane. How is the relationship with the ACA at the moment? Do you still consult on operational issues or do you sort of put it on hold? No, no, we definitely need to consult. The world the, the world goes on and I have a good relationship with Brendan Drew and, and Jody Fields um, from, a, from a domestic operational perspective. Uh, we're on the phone or on email fairly regularly and we, we don't get involved in the politics that may be happening above above our heads from an MOU discussion. We've still got to do our job and, and make sure that cricket ticks along and uh, we have a very good open relationship. Good to hear. Now, you talked before about international pre-tour reconnaissance. Tell me, how is a tour of Bangladesh for the Australian test side looking at the moment? 
Uh, we're looking fairly confident of, of touring to Bangladesh at the moment. We've still obviously stay really closely in contact with uh, the government agencies who will, will provide us updates on security on security concerns or issues that might be anywhere in Bangladesh. As you can imagine, the players well-being, their safety, uh, their security, um, not only the players but the family members that support their players is of our of our utmost concern and, and we hold that um, as our number one priority. So uh, we, we definitely uh, would very much like to, to tour and play in Bangladesh but we also need to consider uh, the security of our players and their families as well. So um, it's, it's a continuing work in progress. Uh, we have our anti-corruption and security manager who stays closely in contact with the Bangladesh cricket board there's uh, the law enforcement agencies over there uh, the embassy in bangladesh and also the government agencies back here uh, who understand that side of proceedings much better than i do uh, but at the moment we're we're planning we're planning to go to bangladesh that'd be great they've got a pretty handy side at the moment so we could see a competitive test series if we get over there yeah they do but their only issue is the timing of it uh, in that the it's uh, their monsoon season so as much as we'd like to play uh, two test matches of five days duration uh, at the moment we're not too sure how much cricket we'll get in but um, hopefully the gods are kind to us and and we have two really good competitive test matches over there was that the thinking for maybe shifting from a test tour to a one-day tour uh, you know, get more chance of completed games? Yeah, that was one of the considerations. And also, uh, from our perspective, if we went to an ODI tour and pushed it a little bit later, it also helped us lead into the Indian series as well. Uh, so uh, if if we're able to, to push the test tour into an ODI tour and, and make it a bit later, then the team potentially could have gone from Bangladesh into India without having to come home. But um, let's see, they're, they're the... They're the pieces of the jigsaw that you're continually um, discussing with the with the international boards and trying to make it fit for everyone. And sometimes it just can't happen that way. And you've got to revert back to what is in the the FTP schedule. And we're happy to do that. It just if if you can make it fit and both sides agree, then that's great. And if you can't, then you revert back to what was already in the schedule. Now, last summer we saw the um, second pink ball test or the second ground. Uh, for pink ball cricket, the Gabba. I know you've been working with the concept of day-night test cricket. How did you think the Gabba test went off? Went really, really well. Uh, the fact that we got a result late into day five, was um, it was amazing for everyone involved. I think the Gabba had record crowd numbers other than for an Ashes series. So from their perspective, uh, the day-night concept really hit home and, and was a great initiative. And, and they added some, some colour and some excitement from the, from the fans' perspective with their, with their beach or their pool that they put on in one of their stands. And um, that remained for the rest of the summer and was an attraction for the Big Bash League as well. Uh, for, for cricket, I think the day-night concept um, is here to stay, or for test cricket, and I think that uh, it's just adding another uh, experience, another um, really positive uh, fan experience and fan engagement opportunity uh, for, for cricket lovers. So from that perspective, it's um, it's a really good initiative, um, and I think test cricket is is starting to, to really enjoy the fact that they've got a, a different way of playing that game. 
Uh, we've got um, the ECB are playing a test match in their upcoming summer against the West Indies at Edgebaston with the with the Duke's Pink Ball. So it's great to see another country um, experiment and, and, and take it on board. And no doubt when we head there in 2019, we'll probably have to play a day-night test match as well. I absolutely loved the pool at the Gabba. My one regret last time was I didn't get to dive in the pool at, <laughs> at any of the games I went to there. Uh, so I think more pools need to go around uh, the other grounds. But seriously, with the Kookaburra ball, there were some changes from the first season to the second season. They changed the amount of lacquer. They changed the colour of the seam. How were those changes received? I think from all balls, um, not only the pink ball, but red, white um, and the pink ball, we'll continue to see um, the way the balls manufacture evolve over time because it is a natural product. And with all the new technologies that are coming coming on board uh, for every with everything we do, um, it's only natural to see uh, the manufacture of a cricket ball improve. So, yes, uh, th- there were changes made and that was based on feedback we got from the players and, and passing that on to, to the manufacturer and, and them putting their experience and knowledgeable heads together to work out how they could best produce a ball that's going to be uh, well seen and well received under lights uh, for an extended period of time. So I, I don't think it's it's just the pink ball that will continue to evolve. I think it's the white ball and the red ball will as well. And we've seen Kookaburra uh, over the last 12 months be really proactive in in providing us different prototypes of the red ball that um, we, we may see introduced over time that they believe will improve the, the way the game is played. So they've been really proactive uh, with the learnings that they've, they've developed from making the pink ball. So I think that it, it helps everyone um, and given that we've also introduced the Dukes ball into uh, domestic cricket here in Australia I think that improves uh, the competitiveness in the cricket ball market here in Australia and that can only be good um, in terms of, of, of the evolution of the cricket ball and in making sure that the ball improves from year to year. So the ball's getting better but there's still a way to go it's not a finished product yet? No, I don't think any cricket ball is a finished product. I think, as I mentioned before, I think technology will say that the ball, the ball, the red, the white, all the pink will continue to improve. And, and that's great for cricket because it means that uh, with a better cricket ball, there should be a better spectacle for the fan. And, and that's what we're all about. Have you thought about maybe playing day-night test cricket in any other grounds in the country? We have, and we're certainly open to the idea. It's going to be difficult given the history and the traditions around Boxing Day and and Sydney Test matches, but you'd never say never. And depending on timing, obviously, if you're playing a Test match in Perth, there's already a three-hour time difference. So you're already playing from an East Coast Coast viewer perspective. It's almost a day-night Test match anyway. Uh, And then Adelaide has produced two amazing day-night Test matches already, and the Gab has already had one. Uh, so it's, it's it, it'll just depend on who's touring, what time of the year they're touring, uh, and whether we can fit uh, multiple day-night test matches into the schedule. Now, you're, you're an ex-fast bowler, so one thing I love about day-night test cricket is it, when the lights come on, the bowlers come back into the game, almost the opposite of a normal day's first-class cricket where you know, as the, you wear the attack down, you might be able to get on top of them. I, I thought in day-night test cricket, as the lights came on, the bowlers got a bit of swing and the game came to life again. And I think that's a great feature of the, the day-night test. 
It certainly is, and it, the day-night concept has add, added a different dynamic to the way the game is played. And I think the players, um, like they did when white balls were introduced, are still adjusting to the to that different dynamic. And I think um, that can only that can only be a positive for them as well because it it really shows up their adaptability and their 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 ability to to, to transition from the different concept of day cricket to to day-night Test cricket. Um, and that will help them, them in their development as players and, and help them become better at being able to be adaptable to different conditions and different environments. Yeah, definitely. And it keeps the spectator interested right to the end of the day as well. You, you want to see that right that last session. Exactly. And, and as we saw in Brisbane, the fact that that test match was able to be concluded late on day five, uh, well into the evening, was just an amazing experience and spectacle for everyone. And uh, yes, we've seen um, some shorter cricket played at Adelaide, but I think that's that, that's just because um, day-night test cricket is still very much in its infancy and the players are still adjusting and transitioning from the different dynamics that are a day test match to a day-night test match. And their ability to do that will improve, as has been shown with their ability to play the white ball in one-day cricket over the many years that um, we've had one-day cricket. Now I want to change tact a bit and talk about some of the domestic issues facing the local players. Now the first one I want to raise with you, and, and I woke up to this headline from John Pyrrhic from The Age in Victoria, and the headline was, Bowled over, state captains vote SCG worst cricket venue in Australia. Now I'm a massive fan of the SCG. I love love the ground, and I was I just couldn't believe this headline. What happened at the SCG last summer? Yeah, I think it's one of those cases of uh, of an over sensationalised um, heading compared to then what was written in the article after that, and the intention of us releasing. Uh, the votes that the captains um, gave over the course of the season was actually to highlight how how good a job our curators are doing across the country. Uh, and, and then obviously there was there was one mark in there that that highlighted the SCG that the Victorian journalists thought you'd have a crack at someone someone in Sydney <laughs> and that that um, Melbourne Sydney rivalry continued strongly. Um, but well, it is. Yeah, it, it is, and it continues, and will always continue, and, and in some ways that that's great as well. But we're we're working really closely with the SCG, and it, and what we're working on is that transition period from when they finish their last AFL game into when we need to play cricket on the SCG. And and what wasn't or what didn't come out in that article was the fact that. Um, all of our international venues, including the SCG over the last summer, um, were rated good or above by the ICC for across all the three formats, Test ODI and T20 International Cricket. So um, even though there were one or two lower than average marks or what we'd expect the iconic SCG ground to deliver, um, it's not a major concern for us. Um, but what we do want to do and what the curators agreed uh, in this process when we sat down with them in August and had a workshop in terms of delivering and working out what we wanted to deliver around our venues for first-class cricket was that they wanted to receive more feedback, uh, more direct feedback, and they wanted to be held accountable for the results that they were dishing out. And so this was one of the parts of that process that because we had really strong data to share with the cricket public and it's on the back of the ICC being more transparent around and international pitch ratings as well. We thought we'd we'd follow suit, and we released the information around pitch and outfield markings that the captains had discussed together with the match officials in post-match meetings throughout the summer. How did the experiment with the Duke's ball go last summer? I think you used it in the last half of the competition. Yeah, I, 
I, I wouldn't say it was an experiment. I'd say that um, it was the culmination of five years of, of good planning and um, good trialling in, in other competitions to get to the stage where we were confident of, of introducing the English ball into our Australian summer. So, yes, it was introduced for the last half of our Shield summer, including the final, and we had some really positive feedback from the players. We've also had feedback that will help Dukes in the, in the preparation of their ball for potential future summers as well. Um, but we're reviewing uh, all of the information that came out of those five rounds in the Shield final and we'll put a recommendation to the board as to whether or not we think it should continue and and when we do that, I think that will come out publicly. But um, at the moment, we're still in the review mode and we're not sure uh, whether or not it will continue. But the feedback was positive. We knew that the ball would would give the bowlers a little bit of favouritism and I think some of the data is starting to show that that's the case. And and more importantly, the, the batsmen... And the bowlers both had to show their their abilities in being able to adjust to a different cricket ball in different conditions, and and we're we're really trying to work on on our next level of internet or next level of cricketer who's preparing for international cricket to to show their ability to adapt to different conditions and and different environments. And the Duke's cricket ball was just one of those um, aspects that um, help us achieve that. Yeah, I think Chad Sayers likes the Duke ball. Duke's ball. He seemed to get it hooping around corners in that back half of the season. Well, well, Chad Sayers had a very good summer. I mean, he was getting the Kookaburra ball to hoop around corners in the first half of the summer as well. And people forget that uh, he, he took many wickets leading into the Big Bash uh, as well. So he had a, an exceptional summer and that's great for the swing bowlers of us out there um, to see that people who swing the ball generally get, get success. And um, it's great for Chad and I hope it continues. Now, last summer, the Shield final was played in Alice Springs. And I think that's two years in a row that they've played the final in Alice Springs. I know why Victoria are doing that, but doesn't that sort of devalue the first-class competition if you have the final in the middle of nowhere? Um, not really. It's, it's From us, it's important that we take our elite-level cricket to as, as many places we, as we possibly can across the country. And from us, um, playing cricket in Alice Springs really helps us with our Indigenous cricket strategy. It, it really it shows uh, that, that we are very much um, on the path of, of wanting to share our content uh, with as many Australians and in, 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 in as many places as we possibly can. Um, it's also the, the Shield final two years ago was played in Glider, at Gliderol Stadium in in, um, in Glenelg and then this last one in Alice Springs. It also is about venue availability. So in in Victoria, the MCG wasn't available and the Junction Oval hadn't been completed. So in future years, we'll probably still strive to play uh, shield cricket in, in regional areas as much as we possibly can, but we'll also need to be cognizant of, of what venues are available when in the major cities and we're obviously sharing a number of venues across the country with with AFL and other sports so um, it's part of that scheduling jigsaw that we talked about at the start of the conversation. Yeah, my, my dream is just standalone cricket venues, but I think that's a while away and economically not viable. La- last summer, there was some press that the Shield cricketers and the first-class cricketers were feeling marginalised and felt like that the Shield was being used to just as a sort of as guinea pig, so to speak. What do you sort of say to that? Uh, I'd, I'd not agree with that. Um, in any way, shape or form because Cricket Australia regards the Shield 
um, competition as an extremely integral part and our number one priority um, competition in terms of preparing domestic cricketers for the international stage. So whilst we're playing test cricket as our, as our premium content uh, format, which it is, it's, um, it's our number one priority. It's the one that brings in the greatest uh, broadcast revenue. And whilst conti- and Test cricket continues to be an important part of our of, out of our cricket makeup, then the Shield competition will be our number one priority in terms of developing players to represent their country uh, in Test cricket. In terms of being marginalised, I mean, some of the reports have been linked to uh, the the proposal, our Cricket Australia proposal for the for the next um, five year MOU, and um, some numbers out there are being a little bit misrepresented. Um, and we've got to also remember that uh, over over this current MOU MOU period, domestic men's cricketers' salaries have gone up over sixty percent. Um, our proposal for the next MOU um, sees a 29% increase and just in this last 12 months um, domestic men's salaries went up 19% so we, we've got to be really careful with the revenues that come into Australian cricket that we share them appropriately and there's been a big focus on grassroots cricket um, so uh, g- going forward and we need to we need to invest heavily in that area for the future protection of, of Australian cricket so Everyone needs to understand that Shield cricket is our number one priority um, in terms of domestic formats, in terms of preparing players for international cricket. The cricketers themselves are getting paid very well uh, and we want them to be paid very well because we want to win the war for talent in the other sports. Uh, so um, th- there is certainly no relaxing from Cricket Australia's perspective or no marginalisation uh, from Cricket Australia's perspective towards domestic first-class cricket. Now, let's before I let you go, Sean, let's just look ahead to next summer about possible changes. I know there's been a move to allow keeping subs and concussion substitutes into the game. How's that going? Uh, really well. I mean, we, we've put a high focus and a high priority um, on ensuring the, the protection of our players both on and off the field. And we introduced the concussion sub across all domestic competitions other than the first-class competition based on the rules around or the classification of the rules around what, what is first-class cricket and what isn't. And we have submitted to the ICC Cricket Committee again a proposal to introduce the concussion substitute for first-class cricket without that comp- without that format losing its status. And we're relatively confident this time round of of it being successful. And we've we've also we'll, we'll see a change in the laws of cricket around the substitute field of being able to wicket keep. So the scenario of of the the Harper incident at Adelaide Oval um, this summer. Uh, we, we shouldn't have that issue again because um, a substitute fielder can can wicket keep and they can bring in a specialist to, to be able to manage that scenario. I think we, we showed in the Big Bash League this year when uh, the Scorchers were playing the Heat, I think Sam Whiteman was the batsman who unfortunately got concussed when he was batting and, and the Scorchers were able to sub him out and Cameron Bancroft came in and, and wicket kept in their fielding innings. So that was a really good example of how the concussion sub can work. And it's those those instances uh, where we can highlight to the ICC and their decision-making process that it can be quite advantageous and, and we should be very, very cognizant of wanting to protect uh, the player's health and well-being. And, and the concussion sub is, is one, of those, one of those new ideas that, that we've really fought hard to, to introduce into our domestic competitions uh, for the welfare of our players. It's really important that players aren't put in a position where they're making a decision that affects 
affects their team when they're in a concussed state. It'll be much easier if they could just swap someone in and out and it's done. Yeah, well, you're right, and that decision shouldn't be the players in the first place. Um, it should be, in a concussion scenario, it should be the medical staff who, who have the experience and the knowledge and the, and the, and the know-how and the ability to, to work out whether the player's fit to continue or not. That decision should purely be the medico's decision and, and, the, and the player should, should listen and, and, be, and, I guess, in, in that scenario, be told exactly what to do and how to do it um, without, without any kind of comeback. I know the Boston Red Sox at the beginning of every season take a brain scan of every player as a sort of a baseline. So if something happens, they they can compare that to to it later on in the season. So maybe they should start doing that to the Aussie first class players. Well, we actually have started that process. So um, we we do do a baseline concussion test with all of our contracted players. Um, it's it's not compulsory, but every player has that ability to do it. Um, and the majority of our players do have that, and our medicos have that bank of information um, uh, at their at their kind of beck and call now that if an unfortunate situation occurs and the player does get concussed they've got some baseline data to work from when they're doing their uh, their concussion testing process. Excellent and last two changes I know the ICC have uh, cleared uh, the way for tethered bales so the bale won't fly off and hit someone in the eye like we saw Mark Boucher and they've cleared the way for yellow cards will we see them in the shield next year? Uh, it's a good question and something that we'll probably need to consider as a playing conditions committee. My personal view is that we probably won't see yellow and red cards used in, in elite cricket because we have a, a very uh, well-functioning code of conduct, as does the um, the ICC. So there are mechanisms in place to discipline players if they if they cross the line, so to speak. And in terms of the tethered bales, again, I'm not sure whether they'll come in in an elite cricket um, perspective, but it's something that we need to discuss as a group before any final decisions are made. Yeah, wouldn't it be great theatre though to have an umpire whip out a yellow card and, and card <laughs> someone in the middle of a cricket game? Talk it, about bringing the viewers in. It would certainly add some theatre to the to the contest, um, and and yes, it would be um, a, an interesting concept. But as I said, uh, there is a, a process that's already been in place and is working particularly well um, by the way of a, a player's code of conduct. Well, Sean, I want to thank you so much for your time today and talking to the listeners about your work at Cricket Australia. It's much appreciated. I know your time at Cricket Australia is almost done, so good luck in your new venture overseas. I wish you all the best. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure discussing this with you. Thanks, Sean. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Sean Carey. I thank him very much for taking the time to talk to us, and I'll be back next week with Jared Kimber.